You're listening to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you conversations for the health of all things. In these special episodes, I am joined by guests on the show to explore how the osteopathic concept presents in their lives and learn about their personal and professional stories. Ranging from osteopathic physicians to those familiar with osteopathic treatment to those associated with osteopathic medicine in a variety of settings, these conversations provide new perspective on lighting the way for the path to best health. Please note that while I am a physician and may interview other physicians, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Welcome to this osteopathic life. Dr. Amelia Beeky here for our second episode of Conversations for the Health of All Things. I'm excited to invite our next guest onto the show, Dr. Curtis Gale Dyer, who supports better health through alignment. Thank you for joining us on the show. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Excellent. So how are things going for you? Tell us a little bit about what's happening right now in your life. Uh, So I am in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, I came down here initially in 2007 after graduating from Michigan State College of Osteopathic Medicine for a residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation, uh, which was an MD program. Uh, Graduated from the program, uh, was trying to find my path in terms of uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation, and eventually uh, decided to uh, open up my own practice. Uh, doing uh, predominantly osteopathic manipulation medicine, but relying very heavily on all the training and experience I had gained from physical medicine rehabilitation. And tell me how it was being in a predominantly MD or allopathic program as a DO. Were you the only resident? Were your faculty, were there any DOs there? I'm curious about that experience. So, I haven't looked lately at the requirements, but I know when I had graduated to practice in certain states, you had to have an osteopathic internship. And one of the PMR docs, uh, Dr. Salas, she's actually a DO and she's actually worked very uh, strongly with the um, medical education program to make sure that we, the uh, DOs, have our first year count towards osteopathic internship. So I was able to uh, complete that, which was, I actually did get some nice uh, online lectures about OMM and, and things of that nature, which was nice. Um, after that, once I actually got into the meat of my physical medicine rehabilitation residency, uh, it was definitely uh, a lot different. I mean, a lot of the kind of thought process and looking at things holistically was not there as much. Um, but being that it was physical medicine rehabilitation, that whole concept of being uh, anatomy forward was still there and really kind of trying to understand and gain that whole picture uh, was a big component. Um, I think that would be the easiest way of explaining it. Uh, I'm trying to think of some specific examples, but nothing's coming exactly to mind at the moment. I'm curious, did you find that your background, so having gone to osteopathic medical school, helped you, you know, in that space, particularly in your specialty of physical uh, medicine and rehabilitation? Did that seem to support you? In that experience, even in an allopathic environment? It did help me immensely in terms of my anatomy background. Um, also, Michigan State, uh, we 
I will say we're blessed to have a lot of PMR docs that actually helped with a lot of the classes and the lectures. So it also gave me a lot of, uh, of the precursor information in terms of what, what, what to expect to a large degree. Um, and physical medicine rehabilitation is one of the few specialties that I say has quality of the patient's health in mind over quantity. Uh, because of the fact that we're the ones that come in after somebody's had a stroke or traumatic brain injury and try to get them back to as normal of a life as they can. So it is definitely one of the few M, uh, residencies, or whether it be MD or DO, that really does kind of take that whole osteopathic philosophy of trying to improve the quality of life, not necessarily quantity. Yeah, and tell me more about that. And maybe if you want to expand a little bit on the specialty, it might be unfamiliar to some of our listeners, you know, who might not be physicians more about why people would seek that specialty. You mentioned a few, you know, those rehabilitation opportunities for specific diagnoses. Why else might someone seek a PMNR physician? So the way I'll start it is there's, there's always a little bit of a joke with uh, physical medicine rehabilitation in terms of as a specialty, we are kind of considered the quote unquote garbage can specialty. <laughs> It's, it's kind of funny, but the reason that is, is because if you go to a pulmonologist, the pulmonologist is talking to you about your lungs. Or if you go to the gastrointestinal person, they talk about your uh, your GI system. We in physical medicine rehabilitation don't have one specific body system, as you would think of with the residency. So with that concept, we then tend to unknowingly be more focused in on the whole body. We do tend to get more training specifically in uh, musculoskeletal, along with uh, neurologic, uh, would be the another uh, aspect. So we do have a little bit of a dabbling of training from like a, from the field of neurology, neurosurgery, orthopedics, uh, sports medicine, kind of all of those things kind of thrown together. And if you happen to go into and specialized in um, spinal cord medicine, then actually start to actually do a little bit more primary care because the primary care needs of of spinal cord medicine patients changes dramatically. Um, one of the classic examples is their blood pressures don't match anything that you would consider as normal, especially if they are paraplegic or quadriplegic. Uh, so we generally are the ones that um, after the acute incident has, has happened, say the stroke or the traumatic brain injury, and the neurosurgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, the neurologist, uh, all those other different specialties have done what they can in terms of an acute aspect, in terms of trying to get them back to uh, to normal. We then come in and then go, okay, you've, you are now are no longer in the acute event. You're no longer going to be dying from whatever specifically is going on or that these other specialties haven't been able to uh, help you. We can now come in and say, okay, what can we do to help improve the function? So if somebody has had a stroke, like a left hemiparesis, we can help them start getting them back walking again, working with physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. I like to say sometimes our nurses are, are, are the PTs, OTs, and speech therapists more so than an actual uh, RN uh, because the fact that we work so closely with them to try to help really formulate that plan to get them functional again. I think yeah, that, I hear, yeah. I hear so much of the osteopathic philosophy emerging through there, you know, seeing the whole, mm-hmm. not being able to or allowed to, maybe if you look at it that way, just see a part, you know, just see one area that's not working well, but how to integrate it. And really so much of that function, like we know one of our tenets is the relationship between structure and function. And 
maybe you can tell me more about that. How do you see that tenant perhaps coming into play significantly with your patients at all levels of your engagement with PMR? In terms of uh, treating the whole person? Treating the whole person and looking at structure and function and how they interplay so significantly, like you mentioned, bringing Mm -hmm. them back, you know, from that space of a stroke where we have some deficits and bringing them back to full function or new function for them. Yeah, I think we'll stick with the the example of the stroke because that seems to be the easiest one that I can think of. Uh, It's more of an extreme example. We can kind of go for a more mild one after that. But like with the stroke, when they first go to the hospital, they have had full left hemiparesis. They can't walk. They really can't use their shoulder um, in any way, shape, or form. So they then generally come to a what's called an acute rehabilitation hospital uh, where they have to be able to tolerate three hours of therapy. If they can't, then they go to a, uh, a short-term nursing facility where they then only get one hour over a month. But while they're in the acute rehab facility, which is where mostly uh, I would be seeing somebody like this, we would then uh, work with them and the physical therapist to try to figure out how to optimize their gait. Um, One of the things that may be needed is some medical management in terms of they may have some problems with spasticity. So we might use some medications to help control that. Uh, We may also then be the ones to, for like the shoulder, if the shoulder is really in bad shape, maybe try to figure out there's some kind of a bracing or taping technique that might help with that. Uh, Working with speech therapy to figure out the best way to help them start to kind of gain their speech back if need be, or even just working with basics in terms of understanding how to swallow again. Because a lot of these patients with strokes uh, can't actually swallow thin water or water without actually uh, aspirating. So really trying to work on all these uh, components, making sure that they continue to have uh, normal bowel movements. So making sure that that is doing well. Um, Those are some like the main things we try to work with them and progress them slowly step-by-step and getting them to a point where they can then hopefully leave like the acute rehab hospital at a point where they can hopefully take care of themselves uh, or may need only some adaptive equipment uh, like a shower chair or some uh, like a reacher stick or something like that to be able to allow them to function independently at home. And then from there, then we'd work with uh, home health, uh, would come in, maybe do some more physical therapy with them to a point. And then ideally, then maybe even after that is doing outpatient physical therapy uh, to hopefully get them as close as possible back to where they were before in terms of function. Yeah. And that sounds like a very relationship and connection-based specialty and work that you're doing. You know, you're coordinating care with so many people. You're mm-hmm. noticing the experience of that patient both internally, right? You're looking at their own internal function. Interesting mm-hmm. to think about the swallow, right? You might think of musculoskeletal system and just back pain, but that's really you impacting that function there as well. And also how they're going to have a relationship with the world around them, you know? And so it sounds like you hold a lot of that for the patient and recognize that all of those are factors in supporting their health. Does that seem true in what you're doing? Very true. Uh, and then kind of like a smaller case would be going back to like somebody with just back pain. Uh, we do work with a lot of people with back pain and um, we generally can either, if you're board certified, could do like an injections, uh, which I am not, but a lot of the uh, PMR docs kind of take the next step after the orthopedic or the neurosurgeon hasn't been able to figure out what to do or even the primary care to try to worry, work on what kind of exercises will help them uh, return back to function, what would be the best approach in terms of physical therapy uh, for them. Uh, so that would be, and then trying to, as again, to focus in on the quality of life. 
there's been a big push lately to move away from, especially like the uh, pain score of the zero to 10 and moving more into the realm of what are they functionally able to do now? What has improved before when they first came in to see me with their back pain, could they maybe only walk like five feet before they start having pain? And now that I've started to work with them, either with manual medicine or in some cases, injections or medications, they can now walk 15 feet and they're starting to feel a little bit better. Uh, so those are the kind of the other things we do too. Yeah, and I notice in there, in both of those examples, that pain is never just one thing, and it's never just in the body, you know, and so it, it takes looking at that whole person, and maybe you can expand into the tenet around mind, body, spirit, and how you see that come into play for either of those examples. You know, for the patient who's had a stroke, we could see so many impacts, you know, mm -hmm. mentally and spiritually there beyond the physical, and even with, we'll call it simple, but we know it's not usually simple back pain case. How do you see that interplay and how you're able to engage with your patients from that perspective? It, it really, the mind body really helps uh, understanding a lot of what's going on with the, the person's uh, pain level. I know a lot of times in the MD world, they want to try to break it up into nociceptic, neuropathic or centralized pain. Um, and that is helpful when you're trying to maybe think about what kind of medication to go, you know, like put A into B and so on and so forth. But starting to kind of really kind of understand that, that, those are great categories to help kind of give you an idea how to work with the patient, but that still doesn't explain the whole picture of why are they having the centralized pain? Why is the pain worse on some days versus others? And is there maybe too much stress going on in their life that's actually causing them more frustration and that more frustration that is leading into more pain? Or So that's kind of the, the, the thought process as I go through in terms of trying to really balance between the two different models, uh, what would be considered the MD versus DO, to oversimplify it, to really help kind of give the patient as much help as I can. Um, but I do really rely on the fact of understanding more about what's going on in your life. Why, how is that, a, how could that be affecting your pain level? Are you a shift worker versus working just day shift? Um, are you having to take care of your kids all the time, which is running you down or X, Y, Z. And that's so powerful. I think even just to bear witness to that for patients, you know, even if you may not have all the solutions, you know, you're not going to undo that they have their kids to take care of, but acknowledging for them that it can be a factor, you know, in their pain. Do you ever have the question come up from patients when you point that out, that there are mental constructs, that there are feelings that contribute to pain, that it doesn't mean it's in their head? I get that a lot from my patients when I try to make those connections and they'll say, you think it's made up? You know, I'll say, no, it's absolutely your experience, but right, these are the triggers. I wonder if there are ways you offer that to your patients or explanations you have found to be helpful there. Um, so this has come up. Um, I'm trying, I'm, I'm visualizing a couple in my head. I think the wording I use has been very good in that, uh, especially here in Lexington, Kentucky, it's, it's uh, wording is kind of very important when you're talking about the mind body stuff. I think part of it is, is the practice I have right now. A lot of the people here are very receptive to that in the first place. Uh, a lot of my patients are just very thankful that I am actually recognizing that they have such stress in their lives and that there are certain things going on in their life and that they that somebody else is actually understanding of the fact that this could be a predominant reason why they're having problems. And that goes a long way uh, of being able to help them understand 
And I, I think I also use some terminology too, in terms of t- when we talk about the stresses and things like that going on in their life, especially when it comes back to how it's also affecting their sleep and then how if they don't get enough sleep, how that also affects their pain. It's kind of gives them some very good concrete uh, things to think about and doesn't keep it as um, ethereal in nature. And I think they, they like that too, because if they, they know that, oh, wait a minute, I'm stressed. I'm not sleeping well. If I'm not sleeping well, my pain's getting worse. Oh, this all makes sense. Yeah. Painting that picture and drawing those connections can be so important for patients. I'd like to learn more because it sounds like just baseline, your practice in PMR was pretty osteopathic, you know, if we're going to qualify something that way, but you've made a bit of a pivot more in these recent years. And so tell me more what brought you to maybe shift your practice in a way. So what happened was, is that as I was going through medical school, I naively, naively, I will phrase it, didn't realize there was a shift happening in physical medicine rehabilitation and didn't become consciously aware of it until I was in the program. Um, When I was doing medical school, I thought as a PMR doc, it was going to be very easy to go out into the uh, workforce after graduating from residency and find a job in like an orthopedic office or neural surgeon's office to do the muscle skeletal medicine that the surgeons couldn't uh, handle with surgery. But the shift was happening uh, to where to be able to do that, you also then need to do a fellowship in pain management, doing all of the injections, the, the set blocks and such. Um, I felt like that was going to pigeonhole me too much. Uh, when I was in residency, so I did not pursue a fellowship. Um, so what I did when I graduated is I did some work initially with the VA and then uh, some temporary work with other clinics and trying to see if I could make a musculoskeletal position for myself uh, through other jobs, but that did not pan out as well. And eventually I did a CME course and realized that my OMM skills were still there. They were still really good and decided to then move forward with actually starting a practice of my own doing just osteopathic medicine. Uh, Many people will tell you I can be very stubborn and pig-headed, so I decided to uh, charge forward and do my own course in medicine instead of taking the established course. Uh, So in 2014, I did start my own um, uh, osteopathic manipulation-based practice here in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And how's that been going? It's been going as predicted. Um, I did do one thing that I I felt was the the best thing when starting this program is actually I took six months before actually opening it and sat down with a friend who uh, will be eventually starting her own consulting business, but wrote up a full uh, business plan in terms of what uh, the whole, you know, the whole mission values, uh, who the patient population is going to be, financial goals and things of that nature. So it, it's so far following the course of that well, uh, and the, I have been able to find some side work, which has been able to, for a large degree, help me allow to continue the practice as I would like it to go and not have to be forced in one direction or other based on um, societal uh, pressures, I guess would be the best way of phrasing at this point. So what I really specifically mean by that is the, the way I design my medical practices, I one of the things about osteopathic medicine that's very important is patient relationship. And I have been annoyed, I guess is the best way of how the relationship with the patients has just gone downhill for doctors. It's been impossible almost for doctors to maintain those relationships. 
So my practice uh, is just me. I have no staff at all. Um, I answer all the phones. I schedule all the patients. I do all the work uh, to keep the practice going. Uh, but that also means I do not take any insurance here, which is part of the reason why the practice is going in what I consider more of a slow progression. Um, I've also run into some other interesting, another interesting conundrum in that my patients get better and then I have to go find new patients, <laughs> which is a good thing. I, I knew that was going to be the case when I started the practice, but it, was, it still makes for an interesting conundrum uh, in that aspect. Yeah. And I love seeing the osteopathic principles at play, even in these business matters. So it sounds like you've had some obstructions right on your path and clearing them away to allow the health of your practice to come through in different stages. First, it sounds like switching from not being limited, you know, in your scope of practice within a certain space, and then maybe pivoting again to say, to leave the insurance-based systems, you have more freedom of practice there. And do you notice that where you see these osteopathic principles, you're actually applying them, you know, in very tangible and tactical ways in the life around you. We often think of them at play mostly in our bodies and how we're treating patients, but we're actually utilizing them, you know, for the health of other aspects of our life. How else might you see any of that at play in creating your practice? For example, like the structure of working with this consultant for the function Mm -hmm. of your business. Do you notice any other places that comes up for you? So what I'm first gathering from that thought process is, yeah, I mean, because the osteopathic medicine, one of the, the basic tenets is thinking holistically, thinking of the whole picture the whole person, the whole picture. So like doing the business plan was definitely one of those things where I was thinking of the whole picture. I wasn't just going to go and say, Oh yeah, I'm going to go do OMM. I was actually looking at the whole picture what that encompasses to actually start a whole practice uh, in that aspect. Um, And I know I keep on coming back to the insurance, but I really feel like one of the things that I had noticed as I was starting this practice at more and more is that, um, especially in a business model, you're always supposed to be focused in on the customer. Uh, and that is supposed to be the person you're supposed to be appeasing. And the more and more I looked at the insurance model, they were the customer and not the patient. And so this allowed me then to be able to focus in on the patient themselves and to really make them the, the true one uh, focal point for everything that's going on with this practice because they are the customer. And no longer is the insurance, which is now, did I bill that right? Did I code that right? And all those other little things. Um, so those were some of the things that I noticed. I mean, I also, I'm, I'm trying to think. I know when I actually, the physical location uh, and everything like that was also thought of in terms of trying to make sure it was easy on the patients, uh, trying to make it a more a very relaxing and calming environment in my office. Um, was also very important because that goes back to treating the whole person is if you, you can't have them coming into some place where it's, you know, like the wallpaper's falling down or something like that. It seems like such a small thing, but in reality, if the patient doesn't come in and comes in and sees and gets, gets, um, nervous because the place looks like it hasn't been taken care of in years that will reflect in terms of my treatment. So. Yeah, I think those are two really great points that thoughtfulness around their entire experience And it sounds like you've minimized any other exposures besides you, right? There's no other staff. And so you really control a lot of that. And that could be seen as pressure or liberation. You know, you can Mm -hmm. guarantee what patients are being told. And you also have to be the one to be on the whole time, right? So there's no, there's no buffer for you there. 
And I think that's such an important message because there's a lot of questions around when physicians don't take insurance and is it just, you know, for you to avoid frustration and annoyance and maybe right a little bit, but it's actually to allow you to really focus on the patient. And I think that's a message that sometimes gets lost and one that hopefully will begin to expand and be translated and hopefully challenge the insurance system ultimately, right? So if enough physicians aren't involved or saying we no longer want to serve the insurance company, we want to serve the patients without obstructions, hopefully, right, we will begin to change that system. And it sounds like you've said that has led to some slower growth, but do you Mm -hmm. find it does enhance the relationships with the patients you do have come to see you? Uh, Yes, definitely. It has definitely enhanced the relationship um, in the aspect that they're not afraid to ask me questions. Um, It should also mention one of the things that also helps in this practice too, is that I've also completely uh, gone in a different direction in the healthcare uh, insurance model in terms of payment and gone back to being paid for my time. So the patients are know exactly what they're going to get charged. And they're also, because they know they're paying for time, they don't mind asking questions um, and they don't mind me answering questions and really being able to give, have a chance to really do a good education to the patients. I've had a couple of patients come in where they have not necessarily needed me to do a, a major treatment or anything like that, but more so that I could have time to sit down with them and talk with them about some of what some of the other doctors have been telling them and try to maybe help put together a better picture of their overall uh, health situation that none of the other doctors are, are, are explaining because they go see the GI doc here, they go see the neurologist here, they go see the other, some other doc, and none of those other docs are talking to each other. And so they, they, they know they can have a chance to sit down with me and discuss that. I love that you brought that up. And I have found that to be a role that I fill for many of my patients is the translator, the coordinator, the advocate, you know, mm-hmm. and there's power in that. I've had it posed to me that, you know, that, well, that's not maybe physician level work, you know, maybe that's what a social worker should do. But I think bringing the physician level experience does make a difference, right? You can synthesize that information in a new way. And we know the current system doesn't allow for that time in many settings. And if we're thinking about health on the broader perspective, certainly understanding is part of that. How do you feel if we think about value, like the value of that experience, right? We can look at the monetary value. You're being paid for your time. What do you notice either how you feel about it or how patients have expressed to you the value of that experience of serving in that kind of counselor coordination clarification role? Uh, I have found it to be very valuable um, to a large degree. Yeah, a social worker could do the same thing, but I can take it to the next level as a physician because of the training I have. So I can actually synthesize the information and then potentially actually see from that information some other points or aspects that maybe should be considered or thought of. Uh, and I know I've had most of the patients who had done this with and been very grateful uh, extremely grateful to be able to have somebody who's been able to kind of help put some of the pieces together and be able to figure things out. And, and some of them are just very grateful that, okay, nothing's being missed. Nobody knows what's going on, but at least somebody has sat down and looked at the information and, and gone from there. Uh, Cause that's more recently one patient I'm thinking of still trying to figure out. Yeah. And I think that's so powerful that clarification because a lot can happen and medical records can be confusing. That's a thought, but we could probably have enough people agree to make it almost a fact. 
and being able to say, actually, yes, they have checked so many things, you know, and it has been ruled out and that reassurance can be powerful. And that opportunity you have as a physician, and we do know it carries some weight to phone the physician, right? If there is a concern, if there is something to be expedited, there is that collegial communication and that the other physician often appreciates it because they're hearing it from someone who with understanding, with awareness, you know, on that kind of peer-to-peer level. So I think that's so powerful. I think that is a major contributor to the health for patients. So I thank you for doing it. I, I encourage you to continue and I, I'm happy to hear you say it because it encourages me to also stand in the space of that being a valuable role to serve as kind of an advocate of the health. I'd like to take a minute and move into how you're experiencing health yourself. You know, so we like to talk to our listeners about how, what is health? You know, what does health look like? What do they do to nurture health? And I wonder if you have anything to share maybe about your peak health or maybe some challenges you've had and how you approach that. Um, so health to me is very important uh, for, I mean, I think the way of phrasing it is uh, there was once, I think uh, some, somebody brought their child to uh, a Gandhi, I think as I remember the story was, and they wanted Gandhi to tell the kid, tell the kid to stop eating sugar. And Gandhi said, bring the kid back in a couple of weeks brought the kid back in a couple weeks and Gandhi said, stop eating sugar. And the parents said, well, what was the difference? Well, I was eating sugar at the time when he brought him the first time. So I had to wait until I had actually done the same thing I was going to tell them to do. So for so me, powerful, yeah. Yeah. So it's, for me, it's all about practicing what I, uh, what I preach in terms of to my patients. I really want them to be active, uh, not to be um, athlete level active, but just to be active, to be able to be moving and to be eating healthy and things of that nature. So it's very important in my own life, especially since my wife has been a celiac sprue since 98. So nutrition is also a very big aspect for us. Um, and with that in mind, we do take extra time in our lives to actually like, we have a garden, we belong to a CSA, uh, we do a lot of uh, stocking up on the freezer on vegetables when they're in season and that nature. We do a lot of cooking from scratch, which most people kind of, they start to quinge when I, when I say things like that. But there are a lot of shortcuts and there's a lot of recipes that are very quick and easy. It would only take 15, 20 minutes to cook from scratch where you wouldn't have to pull out the box of macaroni and cheese or something like that. So, I mean, I would advocate to kind of look into that especially one of the best ways is um, there's a cookbook out there that is like cooking on $4 a day it was designed for people um, who are on food stamps, but a lot of the recipes in there are very quick and easy and they're very nutritious. So I would highly recommend that. But I do in terms of like physical activity, uh, I do higher step dancing and uh, rock climbing right now, which may be a bit overkill compared to what I want my patients to do, but at least it means I stay active. And I think offering that continuum, right? So movement is movement and finding the one that they're going to do is so important. And I love that you brought out that kind of healthy eating on a budget because oftentimes we think it's not possible, right? And in many ways, our current food system has made it so the less healthy choice is more affordable, but there are ways to live in that paradigm and make healthy choices with food in an affordable way. If you're looking back on your course of moving through medicine, I wonder if you can say what you think the low point of your health was. Is there a time when you felt your health was the most challenged in these last 
10 to 20 years, I guess we're almost there now. <laughs> yeah. Um, the lowest point was during internship year. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, yes, it classified as a traditional osteopathic internship year, but it was definitely an MD residency uh, internship at a uh, level one trauma center. So it was definitely a lot of lack of sleep and just trying to eat whenever possible. And I still managed to be able to get some exercise in and keep up with things, but it was still definitely a low point. Yeah. And what were you able to do to recover from that? What were some of the methods you used to bring yourself back from that place of your health being challenged? Um, I think at that point, it was just trying to get through that year. And once I got through that year, I was, I would say somewhat blessed in that physical medicine rehabilitation is not as stressful uh, and as, as taxing on, on you as some other residencies. So I was able to slowly get back into doing more activity, more uh, exercise. But I mean, it wasn't really until finishing residency and then starting, excuse me, starting uh, getting to the, the workforce that I had a little bit more control over my time that I was able to finally get a lot more uh, of the exercise in and getting things back into place. Um, I think one of the other things that's happened too recently is just by having an osteopathic uh, uh, practice, I'm starting to kind of pay attention and learn more about my own posture and things of that nature. And so that's also made a huge difference in my health. Mm -hmm. Position heal thyself, right? We go there. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like maybe it gives you some cues into not going back to that direction. And certainly there are yes. elements of internship you're perhaps beyond our control, but you have a sense now of how not to be right. And to be able to, to support yourself there. Well, it sounds like through so many of your personal professional experiences, you're living the osteopathic tenets, right? You're seeing mind, body, and spirit at play. You're using structure to support function. You're noticing self-healing capacity in yourself, right? You came back from internship year and for your patients, especially I think really profound in that stroke example, that there is self-healing capacity, maybe not back, you know, to the hundred percent of before, but for that quality of life experience. And then you're combining them all to bring you to where you are now. So in our wrap-up question is how do you see yourself for the health of all things? And that's open to interpretation. That's our you know subtext for this osteopathic life. And I'm curious how you see that at play for you. For the health of all things, it's, it's to me that it just kind of encompasses uh, as I've heard once before, and I, I wish I knew I heard this, is just trying to live the best life I can and trying to live, and by living the best life I can, I can be a good example, hopefully, for uh, for other people uh, in terms of, as I said, trying to maintain my health, trying to maintain health, being physically healthy, but also mentally trying to, to do the things I need to do, especially getting through these times right now. Um, and then if I can do that, then hopefully I can also be a good example to uh, my patients and that they can also hopefully have some common peace because of that. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. I thank you so much for the work that you do. I think the advocacy, obviously the OMT piece, so powerful for bringing an osteopathic spirit to your specialty and honoring that it really is there, right? It's kind of an osteopathic specialty by nature, no matter what setting it's delivered in. And continuing to be an advocate for yourself and for others is so important. If folks wanted to get in touch with you, do you have contact information available we could share? Uh, yes. Um, my email would be one of the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Uh, that would be DR, short for doctor, and then my last name, which is G-A-L-E-D-Y-E-R, all one word. So it's D R 
G-A-L-E-D-Y-E-R at L-E-X-O-S-T-E-O.com. All right. Dr. Gail Dyer, LexOsteo.com. They hear it all. And we'll put that in the show notes as well for contact. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great having you on. And hopefully we'll have more conversations in the future. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Osteopathic Life, Conversations for the Health of All Things. Please take a moment to like, rate, and review the podcast. And if you would like to be featured as a guest or know someone who you'd like to nominate as a guest for an episode, please let me know at thisosteopathiclife at gmail.com. Visit the website at thisosteopathiclife.com or visit me on Instagram and Facebook at This Osteopathic Life. Thank you so much for listening.